Have you ever wondered why a certain house in your neighborhood has stood abandoned for years or even decades? Or maybe you've heard about a terrible murder in your town, but you've never known exactly where it happened. Hi, I'm Jules, and welcome to Morbid Tourism, the podcast. On this podcast, I'm going to talk about the true crime cases that may have happened closer to home than you thought. Warning, this episode includes descriptions of extreme violence, including violence against children and domestic abuse. Listener discretion is strongly advised. This week's case takes a lot of twists and turns, and I wasn't able to fit all of it into one episode and still give it all of the detail that it deserves. So this week, I'm going to be breaking it up into two different episodes. I'll be releasing one on Monday night as usual, and I'll be releasing the second one on Thursday. Since this is a podcast about morbid locations, I would be remiss if I didn't cover perhaps the most infamous piece of morbid real estate in the United States, if not the entire world. A house that so many morbid tourists have tried to visit, the owners actually changed the home's address, had it blurred out on Google Street View, and renovated it just enough to make it less recognizable to those who seek it out. A house that's not just famous among true crime aficionados, but equally famous to those who can't stand even watching a single episode of Forensic Files. I'm, of course, talking about the one and only Amityville Horror House. Now, most people will immediately recognize the name Amityville Horror because of the large number of movies made about the home. There are currently 16 of them that have been released, though most were not released in theaters. 16! That's more than the number of Nightmare on Elm Street movies and the Scream movies combined. But the actual story of the Amityville Horror House isn't what you've seen in the movies. And speaking of movies, I do want to mention something. I think it's natural that when we talk about true crime or learn about these true crime cases, We create a kind of a barrier between ourselves and the victims of the crimes as like a defense mechanism. It's easier to think about the people in these cases as characters in a story instead of relating to them as real people who had lives and feelings and hopes and plans. I know that in the past I've referred to these cases that I've talked about as stories, but I'm going to make a very conscious effort here and moving forward to not refer to these cases as stories anymore. They are real-life cases of horrible things that happen to real people. I would encourage you also, while listening to this episode and really any other time that you're learning about crime, just to remember that this isn't just a scary story and to remember the victims as real people. Now, on to the case. Amityville is a suburban village in the town of Babylon, on the south side of New York's Long Island, which is just about an hour east of New York City. It was once a destination for Western star Annie Oakley, who was said to have frequented the area, and even Al Capone might have had a residence there at one time. 
The village of Amityville is actually pretty small. It encompasses only about two square miles of land. Although the village was once growing pretty quickly, it was growing like up to 25% a year. That changed about 50 years ago, and since 1970, the population has stayed steady around 9,500. In 1927, a five-bedroom Dutch colonial-style home was built at 112 Ocean Avenue. The large home was perfect for a family and featured two second-story patios along with a swimming pool. The home was built beside an inlet from the South Oyster Bay, and it provided quick access to the water. On the side of the home, which faces Ocean Avenue, Two quarter-moon windows on the third floor of the home gave it the appearance that it had eyes and was gazing out across the road. The home really was gorgeous and perfect for a family, so in 1965, the DeFeo family bought the home for $30,000 and quickly moved in. Ronnie DeFeo, or Big Ronnie as he was referred to most often, and Luis DeFeo had both been from New York, fallen in love, and gotten married. They started a family quickly, first having a son, who they named Ronald Jr., but they referred to him as Butch. Following Butch, the DeFeos had Don, Allison, and Mark, and when they moved into the home on Ocean Avenue, Luis was pregnant with their fifth and final child, a son that they named John Matthew. Outside of their new home, Big Ronnie hung a big wooden sign that said, High Hopes. Although they had the perfect home and the perfect family, the DeFeos were not living a particularly peaceful life. Big Ronnie had a temper that was renowned, and he would often fly into fits of violent rage over just really little things that the children had done. And it wasn't uncommon for Big Ronnie to hit the children. Big Ronnie was unethical in other ways too, including how he made a living. Now on paper, Big Ronnie worked at a car dealership which was owned by his father-in-law and he worked as a service manager. Off the books though, it's very likely that the car dealership had strong ties to the mafia and it was used for money laundering and even body disposal. Now that doesn't mean that Big Ronnie was in the mob, but he very likely had connections and did certain jobs for them. Inside the DeFeo house, it was often a chaotic scene. As the children grew into teenagers and young adults, they started to experiment with drugs and alcohol, and it was common for them to throw parties with their friends in the basement of the home. Big Ronnie's abuse continued as the children aged, and one night, Big Ronnie hurt Allison DeFeo so badly by dragging her up and down the stairs, she had to be taken to the hospital where doctors were given another excuse as to where she got her injuries. Big Ronnie had begun to spiral out of control in a lot of other ways, too. After visiting an oratory in Canada and befriending a less-than-ethical priest, Big Ronnie became convinced by this priest that he had psychic powers, and he would send thousands of dollars to the oratory to help in the preparation of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Big Ronnie had also installed a large statue of St. Joseph holding baby Jesus outside of the home on Ocean Avenue, along with several other smaller statues of children playing. 
Big Ronnie would often pray in front of these statues, sometimes dressed in nothing but his underwear and in full view of his neighbors. Besides this newfound religious fervor, Big Ronnie had started getting in trouble with the mafia. He had allegedly begun carrying out his own kind of insurance scams, and he even started stealing money from the car dealership. Now, like I said, this car dealership had strong mafia ties, especially to the Brigante crime family. In the summer of 1974, Don DeFeo, the eldest daughter and second oldest child of Big Ronnie and Luis, had begun dating a boy named Billy Davidge, who had recently moved to Florida with his family. She was deep in the throes of young love, and she really wanted to move down to Florida to live with Billy and his family. Big Ronnie had his plans of his own for Dawn, though, and he'd wanted her to go to a secretarial school in New York. Originally, she was on board with this plan, but after starting to date Billy and after he moved away, she changed her mind and told her parents that she wanted to move to Florida. Ronnie would not allow this. He had no plans of letting any of his children leave the home, and the disagreement over Dawn's future caused a lot of fights in the house. Dawn was furious about not being able to move to Florida to be with Billy, and even changed the words of a popular song so that it was the night the DeFeos died, with lyrics like, and the sound of our shots sang through the front and the back and the side, till the last of the DeFeos cried and had given up and died. But Dawn was not the only DeFeo child who was not happy in the house. Butch DeFeo, who was 23 years old by 1974, he was tired of the abuse that him and his siblings had received at the hands of his father. Butch convinced two of his friends, Bobby Kelsky and Augie De Janeiro, to help him kill his father and make it seem like a robbery gone wrong. They planned to carry out the murder while Big Ronnie was in Brooklyn, and they did this on purpose. Brooklyn is an area where the Brigante crime family had a lot of influence over the police force. And since Big Ronnie was already stealing from the Brigantes through the dealership, Butch felt that they would approve of the murder and convince the police not to look too deeply into it. They planned to carry out this murder around Christmas time in 1974. But before that could happen, on the night of November 12th, 1974, Big Ronnie went on another abusive rampage throughout the house, hitting Allison and causing John Matthew to have a bloody lip. Butch was chased by his father through the house until Big Ronnie hit his foot on something, yelled and cursed for a while, but then gave up the fight. Now, neighbors were used to hearing chaos from the DeFeo house, but none of them thought that it would ever end in the murders of six members of the DeFeo family. After the fight, Butch, his friend Bobby Kelsky, and Don DeFeo all got high in the basement of the house, and that's when they began to put together a plan. I'm not exactly sure what they got high with, whether it was just pot. Uh, I've seen some sources say that there was cocaine involved, possibly heroin, possibly Vicodin, um, but there were drugs involved in the events that followed. 
I also have to stop here and say that a lot of the details of what follows are only known to two people who survived the events. One is Bobby Kelsky, and he's been quiet about the events ever since the night that they happened. The other is Butch DeFeo, and he has his own defense to think about. So take what I'm saying with a grain of salt, but According to my research, other people's research, and the forensic evidence, this is the most likely explanation for what happened next. So allegedly that evening, after the big fight, Butch overheard his mother and father talking in their bedroom. Big Ronnie had convinced Luis that they had to kill Butch and institutionalize Don. Back downstairs, Don was trying to convince Butch and Bobby that they had to kill both Big Ronnie and Luis. And although Butch was originally hesitant about killing his mother, he had been very close with her for a long time. After hearing what Big Ronnie had said to her in the bedroom about killing him and hearing that she agreed with him, Butch agreed with Don that both of their parents had to die. They concocted a plan where Butch DeFeo would shoot his mother and his father and they would set up the scene to make it look like a robbery gone wrong. They would convince all of their other siblings to stay in their rooms while it went down so that they wouldn't see anything and couldn't give the police any information that would go against the story that Butch, Don, and Bobby had given. So, just after midnight, Butch DeFeo took a hunting rifle and stood in the doorway of his parents' bedroom. According to Butch, he was taking too long to shoot and Don got frustrated with him. So she grabbed the rifle and shot Big Ronnie, who was asleep on his stomach. The shot was super loud, obviously, and woke up Luis immediately, who jumped up in bed and started screaming. Butch grabbed the rifle back from Don and shot his mother in the chest. Although Butch and Don believed that both of their parents were dead, Big Ronnie had survived the initial shot and he began to get out of bed. He was coughing and bleeding and he charged towards Butch and Don. So Butch aimed the rifle and fired a second fatal shot at his father, who fell down and died in the hallway outside of the bedroom. Awakened by the gunshots, the younger children began to call from their room, asking what was going on. Don called back that they had to stay in their rooms or they would get the beating of a lifetime while she headed up to her own room. Although it's been reported widely that none of the DeFeo's neighbors heard gunshots that night, I did find one source that their neighbor, Mrs. Ireland, did in fact hear gunshots that night, but her husband waved them off as duck hunters getting an early start. Originally, the plan had been for Don to take the kids out to their grandparents' house in Brooklyn. But Dawn was in no hurry and actually was singing in her bedroom while Butch showered and washed his bloody clothes. Butch told the kids that their parents had been hurt and they were waiting for an ambulance, but everything was okay and they just had to stay inside of their rooms. In reality, he was afraid that if they left their rooms, they would see their father lying dead in the hallway and start panicking. Since they needed the scene to look like a botched robbery, Butch needed to get Big Ronnie back into his bed. But Big Ronnie was called Big Ronnie for a reason. He weighed in at over 250 pounds. Bobby Kelsky, who was there at the time of the murders, 
he left right after the murders happened. He was in a complete panic. So Butch decided to head out of the house to find him, again reminding his sister to please take the kids to their grandparents in Brooklyn right away. After a short time, Butch was able to locate Bobby and convince him to come back into the house and help him move Big Ronnie's body back into the bed, which they did. But while Butch was out of the house, he claims that Dawn carried out her own plan for the rest of the siblings. Butch claims that upon returning to the house and moving Big Ronnie's body, he went to Allison's room to check on her when he discovered that she had been shot in the face and was dead in her bed. He immediately knew that his younger brothers had also been killed and that Dawn was at fault. Her behavior had been more and more erratic over the past months, and she always had it out for her younger sister, Allison, whom she was very jealous of. So Butch took the same rifle that had been used to kill his parents and younger siblings and shot Dawn in retribution for killing Allison, John Matthew, and Mark. After the final murder was complete, Butch showered again, dressed, and headed to the family's car dealership for work at around 5.30 a.m. He worked that whole day, and after work, he went to a neighborhood bar called Henry's to have a Coca-Cola. He chatted with some of his friends that were there. They were kind of regulars, and to them, he seemed totally normal. He then left Henry's bar a little after 6 p.m., but not long after that, Butch ran back into the bar and yelled, You've got to help me. I think my mother and father are shot. Bobby, who, according to Butch, had helped with the murders and the cleanup, was at the bar too, and along with several other bar patrons, he followed Butch back to the DeFeo house, which was just a few short blocks away. When they arrived, Bobby immediately went upstairs to Big Ronnie and Luisa's room and confirmed to the others that both had been shot and were lying dead in their bed. Another one of Butch's friends named Joe Yeswit had called 911 and the police arrived shortly thereafter. Upon searching the home, they found that Big Ronnie and Luis were not the only victims who were dead inside the home. All six DeFeos, besides Butch, were found dead. Each had been shot and each was still in their bed. Since Butch was the last remaining DeFeo and had found the bodies of his parents initially, investigators knew that he was their number one suspect right away and brought him in for questioning. According to the book The Night the DeFeos Died by Rick Asuna, police questioned Butch for over 21 hours, not allowing him to speak to his lawyer even though he repeatedly asked to and even kicking and beating Butch during the interrogation. It should also be noted that these allegations against the police were dismissed by a judge in a preliminary hearing, but there have been many other reports of police brutality by this police department around the same time, so you can make your own decision about that. During the 21-hour interrogation, police claimed that Butch admitted to committing the murders, although he refused to sign any document that included his confession and the interrogation was not taped. Butch secured a lawyer named Bill Weber through his wealthy grandfather. Bill Weber was convinced that the only way Butch would be able to escape a lifelong prison sentence was through pleading insanity, something that Butch didn't want to do at first, but was ultimately convinced. 
Butch even took the stand to attempt to show the jury how insane he was. He testified that he often heard voices calling his name inside the house and that he thought it was the voice of God. He also testified that on the night of the murders, quote, somebody was standing there with a rifle in their hands and the hands that the person had were black, end quote. Upon being asked where that person with the rifle went, Butch said, quote, it didn't leave, it disappeared, end quote. Throughout the trial, Butch maintained that he had not shot his younger siblings and always said that his sister Dawn had killed them without his knowledge. Though convincing to some, the insanity defense ultimately failed, and on November 21st, 1975, about one year after the murders, Butch DeFeo was found guilty on six counts of second-degree murder, narrowly escaping the charge of first-degree murder, as the jury couldn't find enough evidence beyond reasonable doubt of premeditation. Butch was sentenced to six terms of 25 years to life in prison. In a normal case, this would be about where the podcast episode ends. The perpetrator is in prison, and there's really nothing more to be said. But while the DeFeo case did garner a good amount of press, the murders of that night in 1974 are not what have been made famous by the Amityville movies. In part two of our Halloween special, I'm going to dive into the Lutz family who moved into 112 Ocean Avenue after the DeFeos, along with the possible demonic possession of the house. Thank you for listening to this Morbid Tourism episode about the Amityville Horror House. If you like learning about morbid locations, subscribe to Morbid Tourism on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. And please leave us a rating or review. Let us know what you think. We really appreciate it. New episodes will be released weekly. Between episodes, visit www.morbidtourism.com to learn about more morbid locations. Follow us on Instagram at morbidtourism. This podcast is researched, hosted, produced, and edited by me, Jules Kruger. Additional research by Amanda Poikert. Sources for this episode include Wikipedia, IMDb, Realtor.com, Thought Catalog, the book The Night the DeFeos Died by Rick Asuna, and the podcast Quite Unusual. <laughs>